Well, we had, had some difficulties in our building site over here with the block layers. They ran into some trouble, and they needed to call for help. So who are you going to call when that situation takes place? This happened the first service, too. Is this not? Oh, I've got the wrong one. Pretend you didn't see this. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Ministerial masonry. Actually, there's no problem in our building site over there, but what happened was the owner of the block lane company, TL Masonry, Terry Lynn, uh, asked if we would like to lay the foundational course of blocks that will be in the big cross that you'll see on the north side of the building, visible to 496. And so we said yes. So uh, day this week, one of the nice days this week, we donned the hard hats, and Ben and Doug and I went out to lay the block. It's a great presentation, isn't it? You guys are spellbound. <clears throat> I was the first to lay the block and uh, put the mud down there, and Terry's helping me, and you can tell that he really appreciated the work I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he said something like, uh, why did we get into that? <laughs> I was pleased. I thought, you know, it looked great. Uh, after I did that, then Doug came up. He needed a little more instruction than I did. <laughs> I'm not sure he knew what a trowel was, but uh, that's not true. But when Doug found out someone was taking pictures, he posed. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Of course, the, the response Doug got was similar to mine, as uh, one of the workers there is looking on, saying, what in the world is going on? Then uh, one-armed Ben Cuthbert maybe did the best of all of us, and you can tell that he and Terry are very excited in this picture <laughs> about what is going on, and that is Terry Lynn, the owner of the company. And they've been doing a fantastic job laying block over there. It's really turning out well. Um, so the cross this is what was accomplished this week it's going to go all the way up to the point or near the point and will just be a, a really neat visible message going out to 496 and we're talking about signage and using this wonderful exposure uh, to the thousands of cars that come across that every day but on the very first block that is placed in the lowest course on the back of the block are these words behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world now no one's going to see that but it's much like a cornerstone it's placed there to provide symmetry not just to a building but to a ministry this is the heart of who we are at south it's all about jesus and it's all about his sacrificial death to save sinners that's why we exist and that message by god's grace will never change and so it's written on the block. No one else will know except you. It's there until the water washes it out or whatever happens. But I just wanted to give you a little heads up on how things are going well, and it's neat to see the progress. Talking about the cross, as we have at the communion service today, the message of the cross, properly preached, the authentic gospel, properly proclaimed, always arouses persecution. And it's no different the story of 1 Thessalonians and the founding of the church. 
If you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll be reminded that this context of persecution is indeed the climate in which Paul came from Philippi to Thessalonica, in which he preached, in which people believed, and in which they carried on their lives afterwards. Seven times in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you have the idea of persecution or bearing up under persecution. And it was severe, considerable persecution. Now, this is appropriate because today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I don't know if you're com connected to any of those uh, organizations like the Voice of the Martyrs that sends out a regular magazine or opendoors.org, you can find on the website, or the World Evangelical Alliance, the WEA that often monitors the persecuted church around the world. Uh, or the, there is an ethics organization. It's an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, ERLC. Any of those organizations, you can go to their websites and find out a lot about the persecuted church and what is happening in our day and our time. So really, what happened back to Paul and to the Thessalonians when they put their faith and trust in Christ is the same thing that is happening almost everywhere else around the world except in this vacuum of North America in which we have lived for generations. However, the vacuum is breaking and the days are changing. And you and I need to be prepared for persecution as well. The message that comes out of Thessalonians is this. Those who proclaim the gospel will suffer for proclaiming it. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, Paul said, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of of strong opposition. So these are the messengers, the Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy, the others on his team. When they came to European soil, to the largest city in Macedonia, or at least one of the most influential cities of Macedonia, not the largest, Philippi, they were mistreated. Not only did they experience physical pain, but they were humiliated and embarrassed, beaten in the public square stripped, made a spectacle of, and then incarcerated. Paul says, we were insulted in Philippi. And then they were released. And what did they do? They traveled 100 miles west to the second largest city in Greece, Thessalonica, and they preached the gospel. Paul puts it this way. With the help of God, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. And the opposition they experienced in Philippi trailed them all the way to Thessalonica. So much so that they had to leave after only a couple weeks. Paul went out in the cover of darkness and traveled all the way down to Athens. If you choose to share the gospel message, at some point you will suffer for sharing it. That's the message that comes from Paul. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Paul said, in fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. It was no surprise we told you it was coming, and sure enough, it happened. Those who preach the gospel are going to suffer for the gospel. The authentic gospel preached in a proper way always arouses opposition. In almost every other country in the world, other than America, the opposition is amazingly strong. Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide, so says opendoors.org. There's an average of 180 Christians around the world who are killed each month for their faith. The Pew Research Center says that 74% of the world's population, that's 5.1 billion people, live in countries where there's high level of restriction on religious freedom and often involves persecution. There is a man who is in prison right now. His name is Pastor Saeed Abedini age 34, I think, when this picture was taken, obviously a beautiful wife and two wonderful-looking kids, a pastor in Iran. In July of 2012, he was detained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and placed under house arrest. Two months later, they raided his house, took him to an unknown place, and four days after that, his family found out he was in solitary confinement in Iran's notorious even prison. In January of 2013, he was given an eight-year sentence for attempting to evangelize or sway Iranian youth away from Islam. And he's been in prison for over two years. That's where he is right now. He's in prison right now. I don't know if he's still in even. And he's more fortunate than a lot of others because many others lost their lives. There's some hope that he might be released someday. Pray for the persecuted church. Here's a face. Here's a name. And the Apostle Paul told us that we should experience the suffering that our brethren suffer. When one suffers, all suffer. When one is thrown into prison, suffer like you're there with them. Those who preach the gospel sometimes have to bear the suffering of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. And this is a bit of a mysterious verse. He said, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, that is, what we suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh, Paul says, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I fill these sufferings up. I fill up what is lacking for the sake of the body that is the church. You say, what is that? Well, first of all, let us clearly state that there is nothing lacking in the atoning suffering of Christ that made his sacrifice deficient. 
There is nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ that in any way inhibits him being a savior for all people. When Jesus died, he said, referring to the just wrath of God and the requirement made to save people, he said, it is finished. Nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ to save us. But there is something lacking in the suffering of Christ to proclaim that message of salvation. John MacArthur put it this way. They can't hit Christ, so they're going to hit you. Can't kill him anymore, so they'll kill you. Can't mistreat him, so they'll mistreat his body. John Piper put it this way. If the gospel is born in suffering, the suffering Savior Jesus dying in our place, then the proclamation and sharing of the gospel must go forth in suffering. And when we suffer for the gospel that we embrace or the gospel that we proclaim, we are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul says, I rejoice in doing that. Now, Paul was not a person who enjoyed pain, but Paul was a person who rejoiced in spreading the good news of Christ. And those who proclaim the gospel are going to suffer for the gospel. That's what Thessalonians tells us. It also tells us something else, that not only will the preachers suffer, but so will those who believe, suffering saints. Look at verse 14. Last week, we this is chapter 2, verse 14. Last week, we looked at verse 13, how the Thessalonians, when they heard the word, they accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men. They became believers, and the word continued to work in them because of their faith. Well, what was the expression of that faith? They suffered. <laughs> oh, you can go to chapter 1 and see their, their work of faith and their labor of love and their, their endurance inspired by hope. But one of the marks that they were true believers is that they began to suffer for the faith they embraced. Verse 14 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered at the hand of the Jews, their countrymen. If you want to know exactly what that suffering was like, because he's referring to the Judean churches, they were the first churches to be formed, the first churches to believe, they were the first churches to be persecuted. They were beaten, lost vocational opportunities, separated from family and friends, and like Stephen, some were even martyred. The saints who embrace the gospel suffer. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. They had to endure patient fortitude in the face of of strong opposition. And verse 6 of chapter 1 says, their suffering was severe. So it might have been the deaths, the imprisonments, the beatings, the loss of job opportunity. Now again, if 74% of the world is in those countries that restrict religious freedom, most of the believing world knows what persecution is. We've been insulated. And I praise God for that. I don't believe 
we live in a Christian nation, but I do believe we live in a nation that was founded on Christian principles. And many of our founding fathers were strong believers. And that ethos of the Christian faith, of the Christian Judeo ethic, dominated our land to the place where to be a believer was a good thing, an acceptable thing, even the majority thing, to believe in God. Oh, we've had it easy. But I think the day is coming and perhaps has come where the church in North America is going to suffer if they proclaim an authentic faith and if they're unwilling to compromise the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. The Apostle Paul, in verse 2, said, We were just afraid that the persecutions were going to unsettle you, so we sent Timothy to see how you were doing and to strengthen your faith. So that, verse 3, no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were, what? Destined to them. Believers are destined for trials. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You're destined. Don't be surprised. It's unsettling, it's not welcome, but it's expected. Acts chapter 14, Paul preached, or the, the preaching of the gospel went forth in a powerful way. People believed, there was a large number of disciples who came to faith. What was the first thing that Paul taught them? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. That's lesson number one. I mean, in my own discipleship, I put that near the end. I don't start out with the bad news from the beginning. But if you're living in the midst of persecution, sometimes that's the very first message. Listen to the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. John 15, 18. Now, if you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. But as it is, you don't belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will persecute everyone who is like me. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. And he who hates me hates my father as well. John 16, 1. All this I told you so that you will not go astray. It's the very thing Paul said to the Thessalonians. I, I wanted to encourage you and, and to let you know that persecution is coming so it won't unsettle you. We're destined for this kind of thing. John says, I'm telling you this, or Jesus said, I'm telling you this so you won't go astray. They'll put you out of synagogue. In fact, Jesus said the time will come when anyone who kills you will think that they're doing God a service. That's exactly what ISIS is saying as they, as they eliminate the infidels, anyone who does not believe in Islam. 
Jesus said they'll do such things because they don't know the Father or me. I've told you this, so when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. Persecution is something that we can expect. Of the 50 nations that are persecuting the church today, the number one nation is North Korea. They've been the leader for the last 12 years. In North Korea, there's only a couple churches in the capital city, all controlled by the government. No gospel is being preached there. If you own a Bible, you can be executed for it. If you talk to a missionary, you and the missionary can be imprisoned, severely tortured, or even executed for the faith. You heard about the persecution that's been taking place in Nigeria, the Boko Haram, last spring, captured two or three hundred girls and took them away from their village. Remember that? Almost all of them were Christians. A doctor from that village, Dr. Bitrus Pogu, prominent leader, said that this particular group of ISIS or like ISIS, they're close to achieving their goal of Islamic rule, at least in that section of Nigeria. And they have vowed not to end this war until Islamic law rules in Nigeria or every one of our soldiers has been annihilated. The war is against believers, Christians primarily. Anyone who's not in Islam, but primarily believers. In Iraq, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, said the slaughter of Christians is off the scale for human horror. ISIS and their members are particularly savage. They swept across the north of Iraq in June, forcing hundreds of people out of their homes. A quarter of them were Christians, and they would kill many just to get rid of them. Canon Andrew White, speaking of his church in Baghdad, said, last year alone, 93 members of my congregation were killed for their faith. The threat is particularly great for those who convert to Christianity. I baptized 13 adults secretly last year. 11 of them were dead within a week. Nina Shea, director of the Hudson Institute of the Center for Religious Freedom, formerly vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, said there are no Christians left in the second largest city of Iraq, Mosul. They've all been driven out. They've been told to convert to Islam, given a week, or die. She said the Militant fighters will go through the town and on the property of Christians will write the Arabic word Nazrani, which means Nazarene, which means Christian. The Christians will flee, leaving everything behind. The militants will confiscate homes, cars, clothes, wedding rings, and even wedding rings with fingers still on them if they couldn't get the wedding ring off. It's unbelievable. That's people who embrace the faith. 
It's not just those who preach it, it's those who believe it. You say, that will never happen in America. I'm not so sure. By the way, sometimes persecution is beneficial. Did you know that? It purges the church. It promotes the gospel. Remember when Dr. Joe Stoll was here, he talked about Paul being put in prison in Philippians chapter 1. By Philippians chapter 4, there are now saints in Caesar's household. That's somehow, sometimes how the gospel gets into prison. God allows his people to go there. How did the Philippian goaler get saved? By hearing Paul and Silas sing hymns in prison. Sometimes persecution is beneficial. Listen to the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, the longest of all psalms. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. I don't know if that affliction was correction for his own sin or persecution because of his faith, but when times get hard, people get serious about their faith. They either jettison the thing altogether or they get serious. 119.71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your word. Now, sometimes physical ailments or even religious persecution, are, those are good things because they drive us deeper into the book and to Christ. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, your laws are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, I'm not a real brave individual and I don't like pain and I hope persecution doesn't come in my lifetime. But if it does, I hope I will be faithful. And I'm seeing things happen in my beloved country that I couldn't dream would happen five years ago. Where in Houston, a mayor says to five pastors, you start sending your sermons to me and I'm going to check them over to make sure they're appropriate. My first thought was, I'm not sending any sermon in. My second thought was, hey, I'll send them all in if you'll read them. I think it was Mike Huckabee who encouraged the pastors to send sermons in. And, and the mayor got so many sermons, she didn't know what to do. And she's backed off a little bit. You have no right to tell us what to preach. And we're going to preach God's truth no matter what the leaders of our government say. It's coming down to that. First, it will be our tax exemption so you can't give, get any write-off on your taxes. Then churches will start paying taxes and then more control over what preachers can say. And then pretty soon we'll tolerate anyone in this land except the intolerant. You know who the intolerant are? That's us. The ones who say there is only one way to heaven, it's Jesus. For a while they tolerated that, but no longer. You can't say there's only one way. And we're big with options here at this church. We give you two different ways, two different worship styles. We're all about options. And if there were more options to get into heaven, I would present them all to you. I honestly would. But my friend, there's only one way, and that one way is Christ. Alone. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No other way. 
Oh, but our world is going to try to squeeze us into its mold to compromise the message, to begin to deny the truth of Scripture. What will we do? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. The thing I like about the church in Thessaloniki is that they didn't become bitter by it. Look at the last chapter, chapter 5. Now, Paul is suffering, and the church is suffering, and what does he tell them to do? Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. Rejoice all the time, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Wow. Because if you live like that in the midst of persecution, that is the very best witness for the gospel. That is the, very, that is the most powerful witness for the gospel that mankind could see. So don't get bitter. Be grateful. Don't be depressed. Be joyful. Don't give up. Pray and go forward. Now there's one final thing I have to mention, and it's found in verse 15. It's the suffering Savior. I mean, it all comes from him. Those who preach the gospel will suffer. Those who embrace the gospel will suffer. And the one who originated the gospel, the central figure of the gospel, suffered. And that's what we've experienced today with the Lord's table, haven't we? They killed him. By the way, some people think Paul is very anti-Semitic in these words when he talks about the Jews who killed Jesus. Paul's not anti-Semitic. He is a Jew. He just doesn't agree with Jewish theology that doesn't embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And he says some of these Jews killed Jesus. They were the same ones or their forefathers who killed the prophets. They drove us out. They displeased God. They're hostile to all men, verse 16. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, they do everything they can to hinder the message so the Gentiles won't be saved. And in this way, they are heaping up their sins to the limit. They're filling up God's wrath against them to the max. In fact, the last phrase says the wrath of God has come upon them at last. That's in the aorist tense, which normally speaks about a completed action. But sometimes prophets use the aorist tense to talk about a future event that is certain. And so they write about it as though it already happened. It's a very normal uh, literary device. And I think that's probably what's happening here. The wrath of God, it's hanging over their heads. It's as good as done for all who reject Christ. That's a pretty sober message. But Jesus is the one who said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you if you're like me. Does that make sense? And if you're not like Jesus, you might be able to avoid the persecution. Afflictions are not accidental. They are essential for those who embrace Christ. It's not that we desire them, but we cannot avoid them. We must anticipate them. And by the grace of God, endure them. This is not a happy, cheery message. But I think it's true. It's true in the first century, it's true in the 21st century. And when we think about a suffering Savior, and we rejoice in his atoning sacrifice on our behalf, 
I hear the Lord say to us, if you follow me, you'll endure some of that same suffering too. So what do we do? Well, here's some suggestions. We can faithfully pray. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Will you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted when we have it so easy? Continue to proclaim the message. Paul said, we dared to go forward and proclaim the gospel. We were not stopped by persecution. And that's what we need to do as well, to be faithful. Thirdly, actively promote religious freedom. Do things that promote, whether it's writing to a congressman, whether it's standing in opposition to laws that inhibit, uh, inhibit freedom, whether it's going as a missionary to places where there isn't religious freedom to preach the gospel to those who've never heard. And then finally, prepare. Prepare for the day when you will have to compromise or endure. Prepare for the persecution that comes. Be prayerful, be joyful, be thankful, but be ready. And I love the benediction Paul gives at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brethren, Pray for us. There's a celebration raised 
Please stand to receive the benediction from 2 Thessalonians. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And God's trusting people say, Amen. Amen.